for your Emmy consideration for outstanding drama series in all other categories. HBO's original series, Lovecraft Country, follows Atticus Freeman, played by Jonathan Majors, as he meets up with his friend Letitia, played by Journey Smollett, and his uncle George, played by Courtney B. Vance, to embark on a road trip across 1950s Jim Crow America in search of his missing father, played by Michael Kenneth Williams. This begins a struggle to survive and overcome both the racist terrors of white America and the terrifying monsters that could be ripped from a Lovecraft paperback. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. We're here today with WandaVision director Matt Shackman and production designer Mark Worthington on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Starting with you, Matt Shackman, what, how, how did you land the job for WandaVision? Did you have a specific pitch? Did you know what Jack Schaefer was going to do with the stages of grief when you walked in? Um, tell us about boarding the series. I'm a lifelong Marvel fan. I was a, a kiddo who read comic books. I loved, uh, you know, TV shows and movies based on those comic books. And I've been a big fan of the MCU since Iron Man. I was there on opening day in the front row at the Arclight to see it. And I've been there for opening day for all the ones since. So I've wanted to work in this sandbox and I was super excited to, uh, to have the chance to come in and meet on WandaVision. I didn't know much about it, except that it was about um, the Scarlet Witch and Vision. And, and then I came and I met with Jack Schaefer and Mary Lovanos at Marvel and they pitched me kind of where they were at at that point. And it blew my mind. It was this incredibly experimental deeply moving story that also got to go into all of these vivid worlds, you know, the um, sitcom worlds from the 50s all the way up to today, as well as big Marvel action. And as a director, I mean, you couldn't ask for anything more exciting. The challenges day to day on the show were unparalleled and unique in my experience. But then at the same time, it felt like this is a job that I had unwittingly been preparing for my entire life. You know, it was about the history of television. I had been a sitcom actor as a kid in 80s sitcoms, um, like a spinoff of Growing Pains called Just the Ten of Us that I did for several years, as well as just guest star spots on lots of sitcoms from that era. So it was a, it was a trip down memory lane for me. And then I've also directed comedies and dramas and large scale VFX action stuff. So this particular unique, strange project seemed to draw on all of the tools in my toolkit. Um, and I'm really happy that I got a chance to, to do it. Now, you also worked at the Geffen Playhouse, but the stage, the stage work, given, given, the, given this kind of the throwback to the way these sitcoms were, for example, like the Dick Van Dyke show, which was shot from beginning to end. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Your theatrical sensibility lent itself greatly to what they wanted to do as they went, you know, as they were shooting these types, as they were shooting these versions of the sitcoms. Yeah, there's one of the things when I when I came on board that I was really excited about. Um, and so I, I was, I kept banging the drum about this idea of let's do our first episode in front of a live studio audience. You know, one of the things that I was really interested in as we developed the show uh, was authenticity, you know, making sure that we were bringing these worlds to, to life in the, the way that they would have been done back in the day. And we had a wonderful lunch with Dick Van Dyke and talked about 
the sort of secret sauce behind that show. And one of the things that he identified as being crucial to its success is that it was done like a play, as you said, you know, unlike a taping of a contemporary sitcom, which we went to for research and they're great, but you know, you see a scene recorded three, four times and the, the MC is there trying to keep your energy up, like pretend you haven't seen the scene before, laugh like you haven't seen it before. And the magic of Dick Van Dyke show, and maybe I Love Lucy, I don't know, is that they did it like a play. You know, you had the adrenaline that the actors were running with and you were seeing the joke once and that was it. And the laughter you hear in the recording is the laughter from that audience in that moment. They weren't sweetening it, they weren't adding to it. So there's something really wonderfully authentic about that and we wanted to capture that. And it was the first thing we did on WandaVision was to, rehearsed together as a group, rehearsed that first episode, and I think it really brought the, the company together and started the project off in a great way. The, um, the thing that I was going to ask, so in, in current sitcoms, when we go to a sitcom taping, they'll dote on one scene or a sequence several times. Like, you, you'll see, like, take your pick, mom, friends, whatever. They'll take a sequence and they'll before studio audience, you can watch the same sequence several times and you have to keep up the laughter. In this case, when you were shooting a few of the episodes, correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, of WandaVision, you went from start to finish. You well, went- we, we did as much as we could. I mean, obviously with VFX and special effects, we were limited in being able to go from beginning to end exactly the way they, they would have in the Dick Van Dyke show. We had to have Paul Bettany transformed from synthesoid to human, which was something we couldn't do in front of an audience. So we did what sitcoms do, which is we pre-taped the first part of that episode where he comes in and his synthesoid look. And then we were able to begin with the lights popping up on him when he transformed into human. And then luckily all the way till the very end of the show, he's in his human appearance, his, his sort of human disguise. And then by the end of the show, then we had to show a, a little pre-taped version of the end of the show when he turns back into a uh, synthesoid. And then some of the wire, we, we were doing wire special, special effects and jump cuts like they did on Bewitched. So some of those things we couldn't do in front of a live studio audience. So we had to pause and explain what was happening and then, you know, put the lobsters out the window or that kind of thing. Did it change at a certain course during the production as you went later with the sitcoms such as the 80s or even the Brady Bunch where you weren't shooting in this kind of linear fashion? Yeah, I mean, we were matching whatever would have been the process really of the show. So the Dick Van Dyke show was done in front of a live audience because they did that. Bewitched was a single camera show. You know, it was shot on stages or at the Warner Brothers Blondie Street Ranch where we actually shot the exteriors for WandaVision as well. Um, you can see it's beautifully lit. You know, William Asher, who was the producer director was married to Elizabeth Montgomery and he made sure she looked like Garbo in every shot. Um, it was definitely, we wanted to do the same thing. So there's beautiful front light on Lizzie Olsen and, and we shot it off a of dolly and you know, the same, same way they would have done it. Um, tell me about one of the things I found interesting. And again, it's, it's for authenticity but in particular with the 1950s sitcom taping, you had the same exact wooden chairs as for the audience. Tell me more about that because, sit, because sitcom taping chairs are already uncomfortable. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> it serves a dual purpose, which is a great segue to my compatriot on this, uh, which is Mark Worthington, the production designer. And, you know, we not only wanted to have an authentic experience for the people in that audience, but we were going to turn around in our penultimate episode and see that very same set, the Dick Van Dyke set, from 
Wanda's point of view and Agatha's now sitting out there in those seats. And so we were trying to create not only an environment for our live taping of episode one, but an actual physical set that we would return to in a, in a later episode and kind of reveal the fourth wall with the camera gear, all the period equipment, which is something that Mark and I had been toying with for, for many, many months and, and really wanted to make sure that we included that idea into that episode. So we love that idea of kind of pulling back and seeing the TV show as a TV show construct. Mark, when you boarded, was it was it before Matt, or like were you already in design on this, or did you come aboard about the same time as Matt? No, Matt called me. Um, okay. It, it, yeah, and I, I it was funny thing because I'm not Matt is a, a Marvel geek and I'm not actually. I it's not as I watch it, but I so he he called. And I'm like Marvel, but well, okay, you know, and but then he said, look, 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 this is the story. But no, he called me, golly, it's been almost two years now. Uh, I think this month, end of this month. Um, so no, Matt was already on. And so he called me in to do it. And did, you know, and I won't, you know, bore you with because Matt already described it nicely. But once he described the story, I was completely hooked, obviously. I mean, it, it, it's, it's both a really compelling story. Uh, but also, obviously, it's, it's, you know, it's, visual catnip so for a designer it's it was a no-brainer were the was there any when it came to deciding which tv shows were going to be uh emulated in the series was that already set by jack and you couldn't veer from that or was there was there ever discussion like i'm making this up let's say uh, she wanted to do All in the Family. And for some reason, production design wise, that wasn't possible. Or, or were, were, were there ever any scenarios where, is there anything that was ever proposed, a certain sitcom that you guys were going to emulate that didn't make it to screen? There were, there were a few different yeah. shows in different eras that we, we ended up swapping out or changing. Um, for design reasons, um, you know, the, the, the shows themselves were always going to be family shows. So we knew that we weren't going to go to taxi. We weren't going to go to the office. Um, we knew that they would be aspirational, that they would be really sort of, you know, snapshots, snapshots of a kind of domestic bliss because that's what Wanda was hungering for. So that's why All in the Family didn't quite feel right. The tone of that was very different from from what Wanda was looking for. Uh, whereas Malcolm in the Middle, which does play with a kind of a reverent tone, is still all about that family as a unit and holding together. Um, so we, you know, we toyed around with lots of different ideas along the way. And uh, you know, I think it was really important though that we kept a through line, which was that it was about the family and that it was always this place where Wanda was looking to, to find simpler problems to tackle. You know, she was done fighting Thanos and world ending problems and she was ready for some sitcom shenanigans, things that were easy to solve, like the boss coming home to dinner or the queen bee organizing a talent show, things like that. So, um, you know, the great thing about what we did is a hugely collaborative process and, um, you know, Jack's wonderful and super talented and she had a wonderful group of writers and, you know, the design team, Mark, especially here. Um, we all just worked together really hard for several years and, you know, it's such a visual environment, what, you know, WandaVision, but also Marvel in general, that you create so much story through storyboarding and previs and design and, and those end up then making their way back into scripts and it's just a constantly evolving process 
right up until literally 24 hours before you have to ship the final episode. It was changing its entire time. <laughs> Tell me about, this is a question for both of you. Tell me about the whole concept of one layout mm. for all of the set. Why was that important? Was it easy dress? Was it easy to swap? And what did that entail? No, it wasn't easy actually, because, well, we, I mean, that idea was sort of, I guess, implicit in a way with the way the story works, I would think. And I don't know that we were so literal in it, but Matt, once we got into talking about it, it really came from you, Matt, I think more than anybody. It was an insistence that um, we recognize that she is iterating the same space through time and through these, well, not through time in this case, but through these, these period sitcom iterations as she solves a problem one era, in one era, runs up against something she can't deal with, she iterates into a new uh, uh, sitcom era. But you need the hook, the audience needs to know they're in the same house, in Got the same it. space. It's really, it's critical. If we were to slavishly say, it's, you know, whatever, it's Dick Van Dyke, it's Brady Bunch, and we go from the different layouts, I think it would be, it would be confusing and you wouldn't, where are we? You would be as if you're literally going to the house next door as opposed to knowing, you know, just intuitively, it's the same house. Staircase yeah. stays in the same place, front door stays in the same place. And you know, I would it's say- gotta be, It's gotta be their house, their family house. That's critical to this sort of understanding of the character and her, and her psychology in a way, I think. But Matt, go ahead, yeah. I mean, I think the things that we anchored this iteration around was the television, because this uh -huh. was a show where everyone was coming together to watch television, and it's a show about television. So the TV is iterating through time, but it's always in the same place, and the couch is always in the same relationship to it, and the fireplace, the family hearth, coming together in this domestic thing. And so, yeah, the kitchen is in the same spot and the staircase is in the same spot, but the anchor points was always you know, were the television and the fireplace. And it didn't, it wasn't just the set, it was also the magazine they're reading in every episode is always glamorous magazine with the same model on the cover, but she's in different eras and it's the ads and the articles change with each era. And it's true of all the props in the refrigerator and the car is a Buick, a red Buick that iterates through time. We wanted to find a car that was in constant production through all of our eras so that we could keep doing Wanda's show because it was more than just homage. It was this idea that she's making her own television show built on the collective DNA of all these shows that we watched and that she watched growing up in Sokovia, but it's her show that she's building for her family. And so therefore it had to have its own sort of core design layout that governed everything. Now, um, what's my, my impression. So the 1950 set, the, the one in the first episode feels pitch perfect uh, like Dick Van Dyke as I remember it. Actually, I think the, the door with Dick Van Dyke was over on the right corner, I think, because I remember he would come in and he would trip over, he would trip over the, um, the Ottoman. But the Brady Bunch set and Family Ties seemed Brady Ties and Brady Bunch like it felt very true to them, but it was off a little. Could you talk about that? I mean, intentionally so because it's the way it's the way she's setting up her own universe. But it's just really interesting the layout of 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 the Family Ties set. I want to say the the stairs felt a little farther over than it is in family ties or, or closer. And um, 
Brady Bunch, it was almost like if you were in the Brady Bunch living room and you kind of turned it this way, it, it was, could you, could you talk about that? It, yeah, I, I mean, well, it's, it's basically what we've been talking about. We, we needed to keep the layout similar. So, so that, again, so you felt the space being, being iterated for all the reasons we talked about. Um, and we were, although, I mean, clearly we're emulating certain sitcom culture than others, you know, obviously there's a Brady Bunch influence, there's a Dick Van Dyke influence, but we were bringing in other influences from the period as well, very self-consciously for the reasons you stated. In other words, it was really important that it not be a copy um, because again, this is, it is, as much as anything else, this whole story is about memory. And we really come to see that in the penultimate episode when we, when we look back on Wanda's whole life. So this, and then we begin to understand how did, how did we end up here? Well, these were stories that she saw as a kid that were comforting to her. It was the last sort of vestige of, of, a, of a family time that was positive for her. So she's hung on to that and that's why we're seeing it. So it had to be inflected through her, her own view of this. So regardless of the issues of it being the same space, that's all important. It also had to be something that was demonstrably Wanda's memory of it, a manifestation of that and inflected as much by that as anything else. So you're seeing her version in a way, her memory of Brady Bunch and Dick Van Dyke or whatever, you know, Bewitched and so on. Uh, so feeling that is, I think, really important to the character in the story. Uh, and it's fun, obviously. It's, it's really fun to see these things and feel them and say, oh my God, I recognize as a kid and I've seen those reruns. That's really important to the audience. But then you begin to see what that really means for her and it grows as her character grows through the story. So they're not just, hey, fun sitcoms anymore. They're embedded in the story of her own trauma and how she's responding to it. So there's, it, it's a... It's ultimately pretty complex, which is anyway why I love it. Yeah, and the the family ties set, for instance, isn't just family ties. You know, it's built of a full house DNA as well. There's a lot of bizarrely nautical things in there, which is very full house for you yeah. know. So it, it it is drawing on lots of different shows, different DNA. But you know, you you asked earlier, was it easy? You know, were we doing were we changing over the same set? And for the most part, we weren't. You know, it was like doing a new pilot for every episode. We had to build a whole new set because it had its own requirements, um, not just how you shoot it, whether it's a three-wall proscenium thing in front of a live audience like Dick Van Dyke, whether it's a four-wall set, but also just the needs of each one, the sunken living room of the Brady Bunch and the floating stairs. It just required that we had to kind of redo the same thing over and over again, uh, which was a surprise to our wonderful line producer. <laughs> I was like, oh no, um, you know, because I think there was a society that we were doing this simple sitcom conceit edit, you know, it was very complicated, obviously, and, and that kind of, I think, dawned as we went. Lovecraft Country is mind-blowing. In the wake of Black Lives Matter and things that are affecting African-Americans today, it takes all these social and political topics and weaves it in with genre and, and tips it on its head. It is amazing. And the thing that keeps blowing me away is episode three with Journey Smullett. I mean, she's amazing in that episode. All episodes are streaming on HBO Max. The show is up for Emmy consideration for outstanding drama series and all other categories. The accents, I mean, in everything. Hmm. How meticulous did you get when it came to 
literally picking up something from a particular sitcom. For example, uh, the geese in episode one, the geese on the, on the wall. I distinctly remember that. I wanna say that was in Dick Van Dyke. That, that just, I remember geese on a wall in a, in, in a sitcom, in one of the older sitcoms. And then things like, um, well, like the Brady Bunch slate, when you walk in, in the foyer. But how, were, were you guys literally going out of your way to parts of Hollywood saying, we need to get this particular accent that was in Dick Van Dyke or Bewitched. So we could just bring that, just kind of touch points. Were you guys meticulous over that or no? It was always sitcom-like. Um, yes and no. And for, I think for me, a very specific reason. So in other words, you say, I know I saw that flying geese metal sculpture in Dick Van Dyke, but you didn't because it's not there. Um, yeah, it's but, so familiar but, though. It's exactly. And that was the point is that, and we did a certain thing. There was, there was a, a kind of modern, or, I don't know what, the sculpted horse in Brady Bunch, very famous, if you know Brady Bunch, sitting by the stairs where it moved around a little bit. That thing existed in Hollywood. It was in previous movies. You can go back. It has a DNA of its own. We didn't go find that. What we did is we found similar things. Again, the reason being is that this, again, it's coming out of Wanda's memory. So I think if you, if we'd gone and found the Brady Bunch horse, that would have been the wrong memory. It needs to be inflected. It needs to be a little bit different so that we see that it isn't, you know, she's calling it for her memory, not from video, you know, of the, of the thing itself. So yes and no, I guess is the short answer to that is it was important to have those things that feel like touchstones that aren't quite exactly the same thing. It's, we, um, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was, no, I was just gonna say exactly right because we wanted to avoid parody. We weren't spoofing. We weren't copying. As you realize as the show goes on, this is about her exploration of trauma. There's a giant lake of trauma underneath all of this. And I didn't want anyone to be able to say, oh, well, this is too many cooks. You know, this is this is some sort of parody of a of a of an older television show. This is Wanda's show. This is Wanda's therapy. This is Wanda's exploration. And um, and so that's why we avoided there were giraffes instead of horses and things like that in the Brady Bunch, you know. And Mark did also many wonderful things that were. Marvel Easter eggs as well. I mean, I, there's a gorgeous wallpaper that he made in the Bewitched era house of episode two, which is Sokovia on the walls. And I think maybe five people in America realized that that was Sokovia from, you know, Age of Ultron there. And, and there are lots of those throughout, you know, we, we have that in the, you know, bottle of the wine and all the all labels that we're creating everywhere. We're kind of, it's all full of her past. Everything is sort of full of Wanda's experience. Uh, it's a memory box, memory palace in a way. I was going to ask about this uh, and any Easter eggs that you can unload, please do tell. Um, I, I mean, it's to the point where, explain to me how the whole Easter egging of the set occurs. For example, the license plate on the back of the car, I believe in the first episode is code for, I think it's, I think it's the, the, the comic book edition. I think it, yeah. if I remember correctly. Um, there are this, so, many, so many different ways these Easter eggs come in. Um, they, they, they come in sometimes just for fun, like our prop master, Russell Bobbitt, who's a huge Marvel fan, as well as having been key to many great Marvel movies, loves to throw them in. So like the House of M wine bottle thing that got a lot of attention from one of our early trailers. 
all him. And he would tell us about it and be like, hey, by the way, I put this in there. I'd be like, great, that's awesome. We love that. But it wasn't necessary to story. It was really just an extra spice for the attentive viewer, right? Same with 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 what Mark did in the Bewitched House wallpaper. I mean, it's it's it is a part of the narrative because it's drawing from her past and it's it's there without her realizing that she's unconsciously decorated this world with her life, which is really important. But then there are hearts, you know, which were important, which were distinctly called out, you know, the heart on the calendar that ends up being the heart on the land deed. There's a lot of that stuff that's really important. And we had different vendors who were equally as excited to pepper things. We have uh, the animation company that did the opening to that second episode that put in Grim Reaper and all of these things, which we knew about and they asked us for what was okay. And, um, and, and that's great. We love that there's, that it's, it's acknowledging that. And I think in the Modern Family episode, there's a, a reference to Stan Lee, which we were excited about, but, but some are just fun and extra special sauce and some are narrative. Um, but I would say that probably about 15 to 20% are narrative and the rest of them are just kind of fun to acknowledge the shared universe we're all in. But most of the Easter eggs you'd find are are related to Wanda, or is there some embedded in there for Vision? It's all it's all her psyche. I mean, some of those some of those um, Easter eggs do overlap with with Vision, but only because Vision overlaps with Wanda. So certain issues where you know that we're referencing certain comic issues that are important to them in the canon. But yeah, most of them are about Wanda, you know, Bova Milk in the, in the supermarket in the animated sequence, uh, The House of M, you know, these are all, it is about Wanda and, and her experience and where she's been and also where she's going. The toaster in the, for the toaster commercial and the blinking, can you, are you allowed to elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that all of these commercials are uh, bits of Wanda's psyche, sort of her trauma, her past, Leaking yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. the bomb. Yeah, yeah, it's the blinking light of the bomb from the Stark missile that we see later in the penultimate episode. So yeah, so that's that's telling us some. Uh, it's giving us hints about the larger truths of the show, and it's also allowing a little bit of her trauma to kind of trickle out and and be there without having to sort of underline it or highlight it. And then you know we have our Strucker watch, which is also a nod to you know the way that she was created in terms of her her. Um, transformation into the powerful, you know, Scarlet Witch is because of her experiment, the experiments from Hydra. And each one of them kind of tells us a little bit about her trauma from the past. Now you shot on the Universal and Warner Brothers set or, or just one? Uh, we, shot, we shot at uh, the Warner Ranch, Blondie Street, uh, which is the classic uh, sitcom Street, the witch was shot there. I think Bob and his best was shot there. Movies, all sorts of stuff. So that that was super important to us actually early on to try to draw on that DNA so that people would be on that street and know I've seen that in the show. I understand that. I just and again going back to to Wanda's memory of of, of all of those shows. Um, there was a plan to shoot on the Universal lot, and it worked out that through COVID and other issues. Um, that we were all having, but that didn't work out. So we shot at the Disney Ranch uh, downtown area there. Um, so yeah, there were two lots, but not the original two. We were meant to shoot in the sort of classic town square at Universal, but didn't end up there. That was one of the things that we really advocated for early on. It was wonderful how Marvel quickly supported that idea, which is that we scouted. We scouted all over Atlanta to find a town square that felt like a backlot town square. We scouted for neighborhoods that could feel like a sitcom neighborhood, and it's really hard to find that in the real world. 
world. It's incredibly hard to create it. Um, there's something about that weird sort of uncanny valley that you get from a backlot that it's kind of realistic, but it's not, and you can't put your finger on why, but it definitely feels like television. And so that was important to us to, to be able to spend time. And the only place that those backlots really exist uh, is here in Los Angeles. So it was great that we were able to to walk there. And then when I was a child actor, I worked at the Warner Brothers ranch lot and I shot on Blondie Street. And uh, so it was very strange for me to be there among the ghosts of my own past, as well as the ghosts of television past. Um, but it was important, I think, to kind of put Wanda in that environment surrounded by, by you know, the ghosts of all those amazing sitcom uh, characters. Did, um, as far as, um crossing over to regular Marvel sets. For example, when Vision battles his doppelganger, that library looks very similar to the one in Doctor Strange. Was any of that going on? Were you annexing part of the MCU kind of design or no? It, everything was always purely your own. I, I understand the illusion you're, you're drawing there, but, it, but no, that was uh, not consciously. It's a nice connection actually. Something I, I actually thought of, oh, it seems a little similar there after the fact. No, interestingly enough, that was something we looked at as a location in a, a little town you know, outside of Atlanta and had the intention of potentially shooting at the location and then, then discovered for production reasons, uh, you know, effects, stunts, everything that it was impossible to shoot in anything like an efficient time in that location without one destroying it probably and being there for like a week and a half. So we made the decision just for production purposes to, to not replicate it, we changed bits of it, but we liked the shape and the height and so forth. So we did a version of it on stage with one whole segment that we could roll out so we could get, you know, uh, rigging in for stunts and so forth. Um, but uh, no, there wasn't a there wasn't a specific that wasn't intentional. But I love the fact that it, that that connection exists to Doctor Strange. That's great. I mean, the, yeah, the modern, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the modern day Marvel world for sure has its connections to uh, the rest of the MCU. Yeah. Um, but we were really interested in the sort of difference between the real world and the sitcom world. So we wanted to make sure that our pop-up base where S.W.O.R.D. Uh, originally sets up shop outside of the hex really felt real in comparison to this artificial world inside. So it's rainy and it's muddy. It feels like it, it was put together quickly, um, that it doesn't feel like it's one of these big perfect installations that you might see in a, in a bigger Marvel film. We wanted it to feel a little bit more down and dirty, more like Arrival. You know, it's, it's a slightly more Marvel version of Arrival, but it's that idea. So we could get that contrast between 70s and clear skies and the sitcom world all the time and rainy and muddy and gross and real, you know, when you're out there in the real world. Um, and then, you know, same with shooting, you know, we use this, the same lens package as Avengers Endgame and Infinity War. We certainly were approaching that with continuity so that there you would really understand when you were dropped into the real world in episode four, that, okay, this is the world that I am picking up from uh, the Avengers movies, continuing that continuity, continuity because what's happening inside Wanda's world is so different. We wanted to make sure that those ran, um, those tracks ran smoothly. Um, a couple more questions. Agatha's uh, Dungeon, the inspirations mm -hmm. for that. Because it's fun. It's very well, that's, fun. That's a large inspiration for it. It's, it's, it. That's a reflection of her character for me more than anything else. We needed it to be scary, sort of sitcom-y and goofy and fun in a, in a 
threatening way all at the same time. Um, which is a was a tall order. That was one of the more difficult ones to put together. It's like how do we how do we walk that line? Because each of these things, so much of this is uh, so much of these spaces are descriptions of character. That one in particular. So a lot of that comes from Captain Hunt, to be honest. Like because it's original. It wasn't like oh here's a nod to the monsters. Uh, no, there's always a little bit of, I mean, sure, but not, not explicitly. No, no, not explicitly. That, that, again, that that's there is great. I'm so glad to hear that because, you know, yeah, I mean, how lovely for the, you know, oh yeah, you're picking up a last come over there. Not that consciously, more out of, you know, that character, Agatha's character and, and then Captain who inhabits her in such an amazing way that I got as much inspiration literally from just hang out with Catherine on set talking about whatever that inspired me to give to to get to the sort of what that what that set is the tone of that set which is yeah. it's a very strange set both threatening and scary and comic at the same time and it also um, nods to her history as this ancient yeah. witch you know which is really important too this this is sort of like this little pocket world she's carried with her so it's full of relics it gives you a sense that that Agatha is much older than you may might realize. And there is that complicated tone. And then also we wanted to mirror the larger hex outside as well. You know, we had to set up these runes in there and understand a witch's space. And, you know, this is our real first opportunity to dive into what it is to be a witch in the Marvel universe too. So it was super important in terms of introducing this idea of witchy magic too. What does that look like? What does it feel like? And we always, we were gravitating towards this kind of you know, witchy version of Silence of the Lambs in a way, you know, drippy, dewy, you know, roots, you know, elemental of the earth in a way, which is very much um, what kind of Agatha felt like to us. You know, also just the contrast in that, as you, you know, we've got these clean, you know, in a way, flat sitcoms, and then you're introduced to this very textured, very different world you know, within, with what was ostensibly still within the sitcom world. So that contrast was also something I think we were interested in. The Halloween night neighborhood. <laughs> I, I, I love your, the sense of lighting. It's very, we were talking about, it's very California. Was it shot out here that the exterior or no, that was all, at, that was all Atlanta. The Halloween night neighborhood when they're going. Yeah. Through. Well, Matt, do you want to answer that one? Several different places. So the, there's Vision has a journey. That yes, takes Vision's, journey. Vision's, Vision's journey. Vision's journey is Atlanta. And that was, you know, where we, where we worked really hard to find a neighborhood that felt still sitcom-y in a way. And it was a relatively modern development in Atlanta with a beautiful cul-de-sac. It was very graphic. And it also started to feel spare in comparison to the closer set houses, yes. which feel closer to the center of town where there's life. And then as you get towards Ellis Avenue, you get towards like the end of, you know, of civilization, Wanda's civilization, it starts to get more spare and more sinister. So that's all Atlanta. You know, he flies up and you get a chance to actually see that there's life happening near where Wanda is. And then as he turns his gaze, you know, along with the audio, you start to really sense that, that all of life just fades away until you get to that, that Ellis Avenue line, which really is the sort of demarcation of, of where the end of Wanda's world is. And beyond that is, you know, here there'd be dragons in a way. So that was all Atlanta. And then the, the town square was at the Disney ranch and well, as well as some of the streets that Wanda and Pietro and the kids, that's a, a street that they have, a residential street at Disney Ranch, but all of Vision's quest was, was done in Atlanta. 
Now, when you say the Disney Ranch, do you mean the one here in Santa Clarita? Or yeah. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Got it. What a brilliant show. Um, what is what? What's next for both of you? <laughs> you want to go first? I yeah, I can go. I don't know. I'm reading things, looking at things, passing on some things I don't love. I mean, your usual process, you know. Uh, you know, hoping Matt gets something amazing and then we can work together again. That would be ideal. Uh, who knows? Uh, don't know yet, but uh, but there are things hanging off in the ether. We'll see. Yeah, me too. I haven't I haven't jumped on anything just yet. It's been it's been a long two plus years of fun. Uh, two plus years working on Wanda, but it was been nice to take a breath and be with my family and think about what to do next. It's also hard. I've been so spoiled working on this incredible show where you are doing Marvel battles one day and live 50s sitcom tapings the next. And, you know, it's, it's impossible to kind of imagine what else could be um, that exciting and that fun. And this wonderful ensemble of actors and this amazing designer team, DP, costume designer. It really was a dream. So we'll have to kind of wait and see and try to find the next thing like that. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. 